people are taking abuses of power to represent all power. You risk the wisdom of the crowds pointing and saying, wrong, shame, go away. We should want thoughtful people who are philosophical about power to then be in positions of power. Welcome to How to Be an Adult, a podcast created by the practitioners at the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada. This is a show for people just like you who have inadvertently become adults and don't know what to do about it. I'm Luke Chow. And I'm Pascal Langdale. Now, whether you're 18 or 80, this is the trail guide to life that your parents never gave you when you finally reached the age of majority. Now, we share these ideas and perspectives in order to democratize good thoughts, more worthy thoughts, more worthy perspectives, so that you can go forth into this world uh, in the fullness of your adulthood. In this episode, we're going to speak about some principles for leadership that they probably didn't tell you when you achieved the corner office. Leaders are kind of the adults in the room <laughs> in society in that we imagine the leader to be more responsible, more thoughtful, more ethical, more conscientious than the average person is. So our episodes up to now have kind of accumulated in this point where if you've done adulthood well enough, then eventually they want you to lead a team, at least to do public speaking once in a while in front of a group. And unless your self-concept matches your recent achievements, then too often we don't feel prepared for it. So the first thing that comes to mind when you sort of talk about leadership is often its relationship to power. And as soon as you say the word power, you hear the things like, oh, you know, there's uh, the, the power of the strong over the weak. It's the lording it over. It's the unfair allocation of power of one over another. So why do you think that we associate leadership with power and then power being a negative thing? Well, I think it's two separate questions where on one hand, leadership actually does involve power over those who follow you. Mm -hmm. But the negative connotation is something else because having a leader when you don't want to lead is a good thing. <laughs> That's not bad at all. Applying a flat hierarchy to a group of 100 people is going to result in that group getting absolutely nothing done. Making decisions by committee mm -hmm. Even well, a committee of four. Well, you see this a lot in um, like theater companies. If you if you have a uh, group developed piece, it's a really tricky thing to do. And still, there are hierarchies that occur, and it's from this fundamental fact, which is, um, you know, things that I don't. I know things that you don't. Mm -hmm. And that instantly, in certain contexts, if I know how to mend a car and your car breaks down, suddenly I'm the person with more power, ostensibly, because I know something that you don't and that you need to know or that needs to be mm -hmm. done. Yeah. Right? So really, in a sense, leadership is having the authority of knowing things that other people don't. That's mm -hmm. one thing. And the second thing would be to feel that they have the authority to step forward almost in an act of service to share that with others. So even someone who's just straight up telling their employees, here's how I want it to be done. Mm. If that authority comes from knowledge and, you know, the, the employee doesn't know how to do the thing until the leader shows you, that is actually good. Mm. That exercise of power produces a better running organization or workplace. So but back to the topic of why does it have a negative connotation? Mm. I believe it's because people are taking abuses of power to represent all power. 
And that's to be scared of a chef's knife because when you were six, you cut yourself with it. Mm. That's to be scared to drive a car because you you had a fender bender last week. Power, like the chef's knife and like the car, in itself is not good or bad. It's a means to get things done, right? So the chef's knife is a means to make delicious sushi. The car is a means to to drive your child to soccer practice. And that's not good or bad. It's just the way the tool is used. But it's the abuses of power that cause people to shirk from it. Even good people who we want to be in positions of power, they often shirk from that power because they think it's going to corrupt them. And I want to say that's not the case. The chef's knife, the car, doesn't corrupt the person who's using it. Do you think there's also something on the other side as well, perhaps, that if you if you don't have a learner's mindset, if you don't have a certain degree of well humility about the limits of your knowledge, then you see power, somebody telling you what to do, you can go, well, you know, you disrespect the power and you find that power disrespects your uh, sense of self, your amor proper, your, your sense that you know the answers, if you see what I mean. It's kind of like the class know-it-all. Mm distracting everyone else's attention from the professor who's done the research for the past 30 years. Someone's narcissism shouldn't be encouraged or validated when it's distracting everyone from someone who has legitimate knowledge. But if you're actually the professor, and that's who I hope to be speaking to, If you're the professor in front of the class, if you're the lawyer presenting the case, if you're the doctor doing the rounds, then your authority is legitimate. Or aspire to be those things as well. So it's not if you're already there. It's if you aspire to be these, to to, to step into that role of authority. If you aspire to it, then of course, a proportionate amount of humility will be less than if you've already Mm -hmm. achieved the thing. So like the articling student is not going to get sent to the courtroom and they would be out of place if they they got sent to the courtroom. Usually I find that so-called imposter syndrome, where people are thrust into these positions of power and they feel like they're faking it, it's because they've actually achieved an actual position of authority and power and superior knowledge, but because their their self-concept is out of date. They see themselves as like an overgrown adolescent who's being asked to present the case to the judge, or the overgrown child who's asked to lead the 900-person department. But I want to wrap up this point that the made-up hierarchies, like in a theater company, do not reflect innate qualities of the members of the hierarchy. It is a socially constructed hierarchy to better organize a theater company, and the hierarchy is not valid at the local pub. It's not valid at the neighborhood barbecue. It's only valid in that theater company that momentarily needs some kind of hierarchy so that things can get done. Often we we feel like our place in a hierarchy, so if we're at the top, we get egotistical, (laughs) or if we're uh, toward the bottom, then then we feel shame. We, We often feel that our position in this hierarchy is innate or that it's fixed, but I promise to you that people higher up in whatever organization that you're in, they were probably just born at a time before you were born. Mm. Give yourself more years and you will probably be higher up in the hierarchy, not because you're anything special innately, but just because you have the experiences that has come with time. You've made the connections that have come with time. There's an example of this where when I started working in motion capture, a lot of the people that I met were like me were at the very sort of 
the beginning of their career in this journey, but it, was, it happened to be at the same time as the technology was also beginning to uh, really speed up in its development. And it's interesting because students might come to me and say, well, you know, uh, you're, you know you've, you've done so much and you know all these people. And I'm sort of, yeah, I do know them. It just happens that we started at the same time. And it just happens that 10 years have passed and we all worked very hard at what we did. But really that just that length of time in and of itself lends itself to a, a progression or an accrual of knowledge. And with that comes authority and with that comes you know, promotions and going up, the, going up the hierarchy. But that's earned over a period of 10 years. But to an outsider, it can look like, well, it was just like, like that. Well, we, we've taken a few stabs at defining leadership. And I'm going to take another stab at defining leadership. Leaders are the people who would go first in an endeavor. Often the endeavor is more intellectual or cognitive than it is physical, but I'll use a physical analogy. And it's a very Canadian analogy. In the wintertime, right, when, when a pond ices over, someone's got to be the first kid on the ice. You don't have the other kids holding middens and skating in circles until someone has first skated onto the ice and then around the ice to show that it's not going to break. And then the other kids follow. The person who's first on the ice is admittedly brave, but they're not a tyrant. This is n not the illegitimate use of authority. The point I want to make is that the kids around the pond can see the same pond, but they lack the leadership qualities that would have them be the first to be on the ice. Mm. So sometimes it's the first person to speak an unpopular idea that is the elephant in the room at a meeting. Sometimes it's someone's got to give the presentation in front of the 400 people. So, I mean, who's brave enough mm -hmm. to step in front of the 400 people? But these people who put themselves in leadership roles they're not fundamentally different from you or I. The first kid on the pond is not less susceptible to falling through the ice. They're just the ones to have done it first. I guess what I'm trying to say is that leadership is within reach for everyone. Anyone can be the first kid on the pond. Obviously, the first kid on the pond is risking getting soaked or worse, but someone's got to be the first kid on the pond and it, it can be you. Which brings me on to the next point, which is the kid that's going to step onto the ice and be the first is going to have to make an assessment. It's going to be probably a relatively lonely one, right? But that means that as a leader, uh, perhaps that's a good analogy, that you have to really rely on your own resources, your own perspectives, your own accrued wisdom. And with that in mind, make the boldest choice that you can. It doesn't have to, the, to be the boldest choice. Sometimes the conservative choice is an exercise of mm -hmm. good leadership. But the boldness aside, one defining quality of leadership is that you follow your own inner guidance one way or another, and you're not following the guidance of others. It's important that our listeners get this point, because as long as you're following the guidance of others, you're not really a leader in that situation. You are a follower and someone else is the leader. If you follow your inner guidance and you get on the pond or you don't get on the pond, you're acting as a leader if you follow your inner guidance. Mm -hmm. the, the kids who will not be the first on the pond because no one else has done it first, they're followers. 
The defining quality, at least in my view, is that leaders do and they have to follow their inner guidance to stay leaders. We just hope that by the time someone reaches a leadership position, that they have the knowledge, that they have the experience, that they have the wisdom, that their inner guidance is well-informed enough that they're not leading the kids onto the thin ice pond. They're leading the kids onto the pond where everyone's (laughs) going to have a great time. There are a couple of sub points I want to make to this. And one of them is that leaders must therefore, in their own heads, be self-validating, self-respecting, self-caring, and self-loving. Whoever you allow to judge you is taking power from you. If you only allow your own judgments of yourself to, 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 to stand at the end of the day, if you take other people's opinions, of course, but it's, you know, they're not the arbiters of your worth, and if anyone is, it's you, then you can make decisions independently. Earlier, I claimed that leaders are the epitome of adults, that they're the adults in the room when everyone else is over the age of 18 and they're ostensibly an adult. Hmm. Those we count as leaders are the most adult of the the adults in the room. It is because for you to follow your inner guidance and consistently be right or to make sound decisions— it does require worldly knowledge and wisdom mm-hmm. and experience. Um, some people achieve a lot of this wisdom when they're in their 20s, mm-hmm. and some people live such repetitive lives that they could be 80 and no less than the 25-year-old. But one way or, or another, leaders have to follow their inner guidance, their inner validation, their inner encouragement, even while they sometimes have outside people who counsel them, or else you are going to turn to a follower you're going to have someone else wield power over you. And is this something which is tempered by experience? As in, you mentioned the 80-year-old who has had a repetitive life and not been faced with the same challenges, perhaps. But is there an aspect where we make ourselves leaders because we go outside our comfort zone, because we uh, state uncomfortable facts in, in situations that may socially damage us or what, and so on. Yeah, well, to, to, to go back to, to the example of being the first kid on the pond, mm. it's not the other kids appointing a leader to go on, on the pond first. It's whichever kid is brave enough or whichever kid feels authoritative enough to test the ice, that person has de facto become the leader of that group in that situation. Um, or the first person who raises their hand in a meeting to say, well, I, I want to give a, a dissenting view. Oh, like, I've done this before, and often I've put into words what everyone was thinking, mm-hmm. but no one was willing to say. Um, even this podcast, in a way, <laughs> I'm kind of doing my best to put into words what some people are thinking and, and that is not talked often enough about. But yes, there is no central authority appointing some people to be leaders Mm. and other people not to be leaders. Mm. So if someone has the title of CEO, but they always have to ask someone else on the team for decisions, that's not really the leader in that dynamic. Right. If if you look on LinkedIn, you see lots of people with the title CEO of you know the company of one they're also the director they're also the secretary they don't put that they got lots of board meetings inside their heads and (laughs) you know play play those games internally (laughs) i'll move away a little bit from the the ice pond example Mm -hmm. 
And maybe I'll cast my mind back to Florence during the, the Renaissance in, in, in Italy. Let's imagine that you're a young man and you become an apprentice under a painter. Throughout your entire apprenticeship, you aren't just using your own eye to decide if your work is good. You are going to check in with the maestro to ask, is it good enough? Should I have done it this way? Should I have composed the painting like this? Should I have chosen this mm -hmm. pigment for, for this thing and this other pigment for this other thing? And then when you've had enough years of apprenticeship, you become a journeyman. And then when you're a journeyman, you can start to make your own decisions. You can start to part ways with your master because you have the experience and therefore the authority to start making your own decisions and using your own eye. By the time you become a master yourself and you're teaching other people, you can definitely make your own decisions and use your own eye. And it would be out of order if the master asks the apprentice, do you like the way this looks? Even though the medieval guild system is, is kind of dead these days, we have authority that is in proportion to how much knowledge we actually have informally. So if our listener is in whatever profession they're in, you know, no longer junior, if they're like a vice president, a director, if they're like a senior software developer, they can consider themselves to be more like the master and less like the apprentice. I have a lot of clients who've actually achieved quite a lot with their lives, and suddenly they're asked to do public speaking, to share original ideas, to set a strategic direction, and that's where they get the feeling like they're a 13-year-old asked to do these adult things, which is an out-of-date feeling. In these situations, I don't have to alter my client at all. They've achieved. They've done. They have the job title, they have the job, they have the direct reports, they have the responsibility. My job is to, to describe them as they are the day they walk into my office. And with a clear enough description of them as they are with the team that they actually have, with the actual knowledge that they possess, they're not afraid to address groups anymore. Mm. The fear came from this out-of-date self-concept that they're just a student, they're just an apprentice, after they've actually reached mastery. I think there's also a sort of a misunderstanding, perhaps, about what being a great public speaker is, in the sense that you might think of, you know, Tony Robbins or you know, any of those charismatic, sort of braggadocio, hugely larger-than-life, you know, they, they, they exude confidence in, in what they're saying. And I think that that can be a bit misleading in the sense that just like the uh, apprentice, you know, starts off maybe by copying something, eventually they've, they've, got to write, they've got to make their own work. And I think that if you update your self-concept to being an authority in your particular field and having that authority to uh, share or educate or direct, then this is going to come from a much more authentic place where actually you don't necessarily need to be a version of Tony Robbins or any idea you have of what a confident public speaker is because you just will be and it will come from you. It'll be your authentic version of you as the confident authority figure that you are. The, the reason that public speaking is coming up, I think, is that by the time you reach a senior enough role, you absolutely have to speak to groups. You have to speak at meetings. You have to lead meetings. You have to speak at the AGM. It comes with a territory. 
Another marker of having done well previously in your adult life is that you're often operating on the edge of knowledge. And this gives a lot of people that sense of imposter syndrome or a sense of not knowing what to do or what to say. But here's the kicker. When you're operating on the edge of knowledge, there's no one on the planet who knows exactly what to say or who knows everything or who can absolutely do the thing that you're doing. So I'm imagining the surgeon doing the experimental surgery where we don't know what the outcome's going to be, but they got to do it anyway, and no one's more qualified than you, right? Well, the the, uh, open heart surgery, for example, those first operations were on the edge of knowledge. Yep. And... They must have been, the people who were having these, these uh, surgeries done, they were obviously told, this may not work. It's, in fact, we yeah. just don't know if it's going to work. Exactly. But this is, you know, to have the authority to step into the unknown, I think that's possibly why, why we like astronauts and explorers, is because it's sort of analogous of going into unknown territory. And certainly going into what hasn't been done before or going in directions which haven't been tried before it, you really are the first person on the lake, and you risk uh, the wisdom of the crowds pointing and saying, wrong, shame, go away, you know, we're right, there's more of us kind of thing. Here's the point that I want to leave my listeners with. If you have that feeling that you're like the astronaut in outer space, and who knows whether you're going to survive? Or what if all the kids laugh at you because you fell through the ice since you dare to be the first to go on? If you have this feeling, it absolutely comes with the territory of being a leader. And without this feeling, you're probably not, you know, a leader to that many people. And and this is why it also comes down to a certain level of self-regard. Uh, and self-love and self-reassurance is because you have to be able to withstand that. Your personality, your sense of self, of value, needs to be able to withstand both praise but also condemnation. And that's that's why self-validation, self-respect, and self-love are utterly essential for the leaders of the world. Because if your feelings of being validated, loved, and accepted depend on what the last person said to you, how are you going to be a bad president of the United States of America? Even if we imagine that the lawyer representing the refugee who's trying to gain residency status, they don't know what the judge is going to decide. They don't know what the outcome's going to be, but they still have to show up and present to the best of their ability anyway. You don't want to be in a situation later on in adult life where you're only solving solved problems. You don't want to be in a situation where you're never at the edge of knowledge and then you never get this uncertain feeling. Our clients, who who at least I see in in my practice, and I, I imagine many of the listeners to this podcast are at a point in their lives where they have to tap into their self-authority. They have to, in their own heads and hearts, tell themselves they can, not that they can't, since they've done well in life and others see them as an authority. To bring this point to a conclusion, you're not doing adult life badly. (laughs) If you have imposter syndrome, it's usually the opposite. All of this is to be embraced in adult life, especially when you rise up high enough that others want to follow your lead. Along with the problem of being on the edge of knowledge, here's another fun problem Mm -hmm. that leaders have. You're often presented 
with trolley problems. <laughs> so if you don't know, like, you know, base, you well, know, the, the, the wheels wiggly and... Uh... Well, well <laughs> so, so here's the trolley problem from moral philosophy. You've got an out of control trolley. So, so like, like, like a cart on rails and it's going downhill and you're at a switch. In the current trajectory of that trolley, it's going to kill five people, right? They're oblivious. They got their headphones on. And if the trolley keeps going and you don't do anything, five people are going to die. If you flip the switch, though, the tracks change and the five people are saved, but you're going to kill two people and one of them is the mayor. What do you do? Mm -hmm. You don't ask AI. (laughs) <laughs> you, well, you could. I mean, you could flip a coin. Yeah. But th- this is a question where you can make arguments f- on mm-hmm. both sides. You could say, okay, no life is worth more than any other, so you- you're going to save the five lives and you're going to kill the two people. Mm-hmm. Or you could say, well, that mayor has done so much to feed the homeless. Let's save them and then the person they're with and let the five people go under the wheels. So that there is no absolute right, wrong, or correct answer, but that this could be debated. Problems where there is a clear, mutually agreed upon answer, those are for your direct reports. By the time you reach a position of leadership, you're at the switch a lot trying to decide which of two bad outcomes is going to happen. So leaders often end up then getting a lot of criticism and flack because two people died. If it's not that two people died, it's five people died. Mm-hmm. This is metaphorical, of course. So, you know, it could be jobs, not, not yeah. lives. If it's lives, it's corporate manslaughter. <laughs> but, but it's similar to like the, the, the epistemological problem of being on the edge of knowledge and you've got to figure it out for yourself in that you're on the edge of morality and you've got to figure it out for yourself. And one way or another, you are probably going to get criticism for your decision. Anyone who claims that if they were only in your shoes, they would have pulled the, the switch. They've never been in your shoes before. I think there's something else about being on the edge of morality for a leader too, is that to me, one of the, one of the heights of leadership is to be so secure, so wise in your position that you can actually turn around to your subordinates and say, do you know something that I don't know? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have the ego in the way that stops you from actioning something that somebody else knew that you didn't. All the greatest leaders were able to hear and listen even to their detractors, not 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 punish them necessarily for even getting something wrong or going in the wrong direction. And we were talking about um, the uh, CEO of um, uh, Magna. Mm, um, yeah. What's his name? Frank Stronach. Frank Stronach, yes, who, who uh, installed like a hotline telephone in his manufacturing plants or a system that was anonymous, anonymous, and anybody could put anything in saying what they thought could be done better, what was going wrong, something that, uh, you know, an HR thing. But And he said that the, um, uh, the feedback from everybody was, this is brilliant because it ended up meaning that the people further down the hierarchy were being heard. And that it's not that they were considered, you know, useless appendages to this great machine. But instead, you know, to me, that's great leadership. There's a concept called servant leadership. Mm. And I, I think that's what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, okay. Where the leader is not the tyrant at the top. The leader serves his or her workers so the workers get the job done. Mm-hmm. And there is much merit, I, I think, 
in, in, in this view that just like the minister in front of his flock is, is no tyrant, but is serving his flock, mm-hmm. that a leader to a corporation is never to be a tyrant, but is instead serving the workers and giving them the knowledge, the tools, the resources that they need to do their jobs excellently. And that's very much the attitude that allows you to speak publicly with authority is if you see it as an act of service, less mm-hmm. a question of ego and and being potentially you know being seen as being arrogant. If you're doing it as an act of service and you see it as that, then you are essentially being the servant leader. Absolutely. Mm. Teachers, for example. Yeah. Teachers are very much serving their students. Yeah. And I'm sure there's 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 plenty of people out there who have memories of teachers, perhaps that were pivotal to their career path even. And if you think back of them, you sort of think, well, they show leadership qualities as servant leaders. And you, the thing is, you don't remember the times that they stumbled or coughed or were sick or, mm-hmm. you know, you don't remember any of that. But you do remember their charisma, their passion. You remember probably as a result a fair amount of what it is that they taught as well. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, looking to good teachers as the uh, adults in the room that perhaps are good to, to look at, to, uh, to think of as leaders is, yeah. is probably a good reference. Well, there, there are a number of themes that we seem to be coming back to during today's episode. And one of them is that the good kind of authority, the leadership or power wielded well, is the authority of the teacher or the professor, not the authority of, of the tyrant. Mm-hmm. So so rounding out this list of things that come with the territory of leadership that are rather unfortunate is that when you are seen to be the person at the front of the room who's talking, you are definitely going to be attracting envy and resentment, not because you're necessarily an enviable person, not at all because you are innately a resentable person, but because there's something in the, the human heart that seems to envy and resent those who seem to be one step above oneself. So if you do attract envy and resentment, if, you, if, if people start sniping at you, if sometimes friends demonstrate they're jealous of you, if you know, sometimes people feel like you've gotten too good for them, even though in your eyes you've done nothing wrong, I would back up this view, you've done nothing wrong, because sometimes th- this comes with the territory. Well, it, when you have kids who are vilifying you and saying, you know, treating you very badly. As a parent, you still have to say, no, that's not right. And you have to be able to express that and not join in the, you know, the rage and not make things worse, right? But it's quite a natural function. I think, as you said, you know, there's this thing, which is this uh, need to kick against authority, which in some ways is is a healthy thing too. It's, It's not necessarily a bad thing. In some situations, it might be quite necessary. And I think the very function itself is perhaps also wrapped up with the frustrations of ambition, the gap between where you are and where you want to be, and that in being unable to control those emotions, I would associate more with, should we say, somebody who hasn't just hasn't quite grown up. Well, I, I'm an anti-authoritarian. Mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> Very much so. I'm a way more punk rock than some people seem to think I am. But... I have no problem with earned authority. So if someone else knows how to tie their shoelaces in a really cool way and I don't, I submit to them when it comes to how to tie my shoelaces the way they have, right? What I push back against and what I think people should push back against 
is taking these made-up hierarchies way too seriously, where you think the made-up hierarchies point to innate qualities in people. Um, I push back against unearned authority, abuse of power, of course, or people with less knowledge being in positions of authority above people with more knowledge. So I push back against all of that. I, you know, I'm not against all authority, though I do very much identify as an anti-authoritarian. I, I just think th these are the ways that authority is often misused, that power is often misused. But there is a legitimate use of power. So if I know how to do a cool thing, then please sit at my feet and I'll show you how to do that cool thing. Yeah, so, so you're anti-authoritarian, and a good proportion of that is basically anti-tyranny. Yeah, I guess if anti-tyranny were more of a common word that mm -hmm. people used, I, I'm an anti-tyrant. Anti-tyrant. I think everyone's an anti-tyrant. Um, but, 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 yeah. uh, unless you're a tyrant. Right. And then you're just anti-other tyrants. I'm a rebel with a cause. I'm not a rebel without a cause. You're tearing me apart! Sorry. Lisa! <laughs> One thing I'll, I'll say to, to wrap up that point is that we should want thoughtful people who are philosophical about power to then be in positions of power. We don't want people who just gratify their ego or who love to power trip to be in positions of power. Whenever I have a client in front of me and they, they, they seem thoughtful, intelligent, humble, and they want to do well, I wish for them to pursue positions of power. I hope mm. they become the chief executive officer one day. Because I don't want this world to be ruled by power-hungry, egomaniacal tyrants the way it often is. I want it to be ruled by thoughtful people who are careful with power, like I want chef's, chef's knives to be wielded by people who are careful with chef's knives. And I think that in some ways, much of life is currently characterized by power more than perhaps is accurate in the sense that I do believe that most people aspire to gain authority through wisdom, who aspire yeah. to be able to share, direct, educate, or whatever it is, from a position of authority that is <laughs> earned, that is, is, you know, is trained. When I think about myself, when I think about the clients I've worked with to get them acclimatized to a position of power, they are generally thoughtful people who mean well and who don't want to cause harm because they've been elevated into a position of power. Right. These are the people who should be on condo boards. These are the people who should try to climb up the corporate ladder. These are the people who should run for public office. Oh, if only. <laughs> this is why I'm making the podcast. And this is why I'm saying it on the podcast. Because at least, you know, insofar as I'm able to make some ripples, I very much want the people who are somewhat uncomfortable with power to then become the people in positions of power, just like you should always respect the power of the car you're driving on a public road. Power should be wielded in a similar way. It should not be avoided. It's not innately bad, but it should be wielded carefully. And so with the idea that wielding power and authority requires the wisdom to be able to do it well, the wisdom to be able to, to direct, to educate, to share, in, in many situations, you're going to be faced with having to do that quite literally, to actually stand in a position of authority in front of a whole bunch of people. And just that very dynamic, if you think about it, a bunch of people looking at one person, well, we, we know who has been placed in the position of authority. And all it really is, 
when you think about it, is somebody knows something that all the people watching may not. Right? And that's, that's, really, that's really the basic of the transaction. Now, this is public speaking. And for, for about 80% of the people out there, they don't feel that they have the confidence to speak publicly. And what well, you and I have been working on a uh, masterclass to try and create the best, most comprehensive public speaking masterclass we can. Well, our, our listeners have had a preview in this episode as to the kinds of things that you'll mm. be instilling as an attitude yes. in your students, right? Yeah. So the, the idea that they're not the 13-year-old, even if they feel like it, they're actually the CEO of this, the <laughs> VP of that, yep. they're actually the founder of their firm. And ideas like even just that being on the edge of knowledge and mm. not making everyone happy and having some people be resentful when you speak, all of that adds up to a much more confident public speaker because you know it's not you if someone coughs over there in the audience. Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell our listeners how they can think like you when it comes to the presentations that they have to do? So on January the 20th, 2024, we are starting our public speaking masterclass at uh, the Morpheus uh, Clinic for Hypnosis. And it's a series of five four-hour classes where we will cover everything that you need to know from vocal techniques, uh, different ways to calm your nerve system, different approaches to actually interacting with the audience and how you should approach speaking to an audience. Every class has an element of, of hypnotic suggestion, which you can just listen to. You don't need to actually be um, hypnotized. But these are good and worthy suggestions that do the work of helping you to change your mindset to having a, a more accurate self-concept, both of who you've arrived at in your life at this point, as well as your role and the better ways and more useful ways of looking at the act of, of public speaking. This workshop is designed that by the end of it, uh, not only do you get a little certificate, of course, but you'll be stepping into your role as a leader with the full authority that you've already got. If this sounds like the person that you want to be, then feel free to get in touch through the website. And if you missed that date, just check out our website or get in contact because we will have workshops as long as we are still in business. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for listening. It's been a pleasure having you on board for this journey. And if you want to engage with us more one-on-one -on -one in private, please reach out to the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis at www.morpheusclinic.com. At heart, we are practical philosophers. We are in not just the business of spreading good ideas. We're actually trying everything we can do to live out these good ideas and to spread these good ideas in any way. So again, thank you so much for listening. If you are interested to hear more of these, please subscribe at YouTube on Morpheus Hypnosis or at Spotify, of course, and anywhere that you get your podcasts as we continue to talk about other uh, subjects all about how to be an adult. <laughs> <laughs>